Tune into the manifesto hosted by Emily Wheaton, Logan Cook, and Logan Bishop. The Political Science Society's new radio cast. Catch us on local 107.3 FM and wherever you find podcasts. Hi, my name is Logan, and this is the manifesto. Today, my guest is Brent Harris, counsel at large for the city of St. John. Hi, Brent. Hey, Logan. How you doing? Good. How are you? A lot has happened in the city in the past, I want to say in the past few months. Uh, oh, yeah. I want to start with the new school that the province announced is going to go in the south end. They, they announced the location back in December. It, they've yeah. been talking about that school for, oh, God, probably five, six years now. What are your thoughts on having a brand new school in one of the most poverty ran neighborhoods in the city? I can say that it's been too long in the making, uh-huh. for sure. Um, <laughs> it's obviously a delight to us all, and it's something that, uh, you know, I ran, it's funny, because I ran for the Greens uh, in 2020, uh-huh. and at that time, the business plan and the um, some of the location options and some of the uh, requirements and design work had already been done. It was a big undertaking by Develop St. John, a local uh, body of people, you know, mm-hmm. local community activists like Nick Cameron, um, you know, and you know, the city was well into it. And they brought us in for a briefing, all the candidates, on where they were at, because they wanted to make sure it was a top-tier advocacy project. But if you would have said to me then, with all of the candidates, um, saying the same thing. No, we're going to make sure this happens. Um, priority, all this stuff. That it would take an extra, another five years before we saw the school. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have believed it. Now, I, I don't want to be a, De- a Debbie Downer. <laughs> I, I, I guess for me, it's, it's just, since I got to council even, it's been one of these major points of frustration. Um, you know, seeing especially two budget cycles go by where we've not had money for construction, just money for design. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so it's like, of course, we're excited. We know what's needed. We, we're the longest suffering, um, Anglophone School District South is one of the longest suffering um, uh, districts that has lacked a new school mm-hmm. with some of the most aged infrastructure in the province uh, for, for decades now. And so it's, it's about time, but it's still a bit of a frustration point for me that we still don't have money for construction. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, construction of this thing will be after the next provincial election. It won't be in this, uh, in this mandate, which to me is, is just crazy because it doesn't take, uh, and it hasn't taken that long to do anything like that in the past. So anyway, that's, those are some of my thoughts on the, on the South End School. Uh, it's going to be a, a major piece of the puzzle for mm-hmm. uh, changing the narrative um, there is just we really want to see it move a lot faster. Yes, I, I've noticed that most of the schools here in the city aren't new and most of the schools in the outlying areas also aren't new. I went to a high school that thing's 45 years old and it looks the same as it did in 1978. Yeah, yeah. You went to Sunday High School, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, so did I. 
saw the 755 number pop up, and I thought, okay, this guy's a Charlotte County guy, too. I figured he was. He's got the last name Cook, so not Cook with an E, though. No, no. Well, I'm one of the weird ones, as we like to say. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that will, I think, transform Uptown is the Funded Key Project. That will... Yeah, we're talking uh, about that tonight, actually. Yes, I saw I saw some renderings from, I think it was David Hickey on Twitter not long ago. Probably. Um, yeah. That project will transform the the skyline of St. John as something that hasn't happened in years. Uh, what are your thoughts on the project? It's commercial spaces, it's residential units, and the facilities such as an outdoor skating rink uptown. Yeah, so it's really for us, you know... Seeing, again, this was something that would have been started um, under Develop St. John when mm-hmm. it still existed um, back in 2019. Uh, you know, when, when, the, when the museum was scrapped uh, by the Progressive Conservative government um, in, in, in 18, it really did stifle some of the work and some of the you know, hopes and desires for people who were looking for a reinvigorated uptown. Mm-hmm. I mean... The South Central Peninsula Plan has done a phenomenal job at laying out the roadmap for where this part of the city needs to go and wants to go based on best practices, good urban planning, uh, development, quality of life initiatives, stuff like that. So that that area was always highlighted for something like Sunday Key. Yeah. So it's amazing to see us getting there. Um, and even still, what I find amazing is the last two years, St. John's core, so the Central Peninsula, Central Peninsula, has been one of the fastest growing, top five, I believe, fastest growing downtowns in the country. Oh, I, I did not uh, even, know that. Even exceeding uh, Halifax a couple of years in a row. Uh, last year, we grew, this part of the city grew at 11.5%. So that's before the Sunday key, mm-hmm. right? Which is very interesting to see. Uh, but we on council, you know, continue to have that as one of our catalytic projects for that very reason, because we know when you look at other cities that get something like that established on top of the vibrancy we've already seen brought back, which mm-hmm. really does go to the residents, just like St. Johners are just gritty, you know, active residents. You've got initiatives like Area 506, um, Waterfront uh, Village, you've got the Area 506 conference, or sorry, not conference, but concert series that mm-hmm. happens down there, as well as the big one. You've got the Moonlight Bazaar. You've got all kinds of different initiatives that are happening that shut down the whole city, <laughs> like Memorial Cup was a big example of that, and shut down the streets, and people love it, and they show up in droves. So that vibrancy's been there. It's been bringing people from all over to see the city. Um, and now when you start parking another 500 people here, another thousand people there in some of these bigger projects, it's just going to continue that trend, which is really good for the city. Yeah, I, I think the Fun to Keep project is great. And also, I do like the outdoor skating rink because, well, who doesn't want to have an outdoor skating rink around the Bay of Fun Day? It just sounds great. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a whole point, a whole, whole destination in and of itself. Mm. I know when I, was, when I was living in Hamilton, I moved to Hamilton to work for a nonprofit for, for a few years. And, uh, you know, you'd go down City Hall in Toronto, and you'd skate out front of City Hall. Um, very, always busy, always bringing people mm-hmm. down into their core, um, you know. And, and so those, those types of amenities are unique, and, yeah, they are, uh, we're excited about that, too. 
Uh, St. John Transit is launching, I, I think today or re- in the t- near future, uh, what they're calling a flex service. Could you talk more about that? Because I don't really understand what it is. Yeah, flex service is an innovative solution to uh, big buses driving around half empty. Uh-huh. So <laughs> every city needs a modern transit service, right? And yeah. I would argue in an era of inflation and rising costs, it's more and it's it's more incumbent on good leadership at the city level to provide that level of service and increase it each year because that is going to build in resiliency for people who are hitting the pocketbook. You know, we ran some numbers. The average family spends about fourteen thousand between ten and fourteen thousand a year between maintenance, gas, insurance, and everything else uh, with regards to their second car. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of decarring the population. Um, has to have solutions, and that's one of them. And this flex service that we're talking about, it's an on-demand service where you can pick up your phone, click the app, hail a bus to a bus stop. That bus, we're working on, I'm on Transit Commission on this, it's something we've been working on uh, diligently, trying to figure out the policy, trying to figure out the resourcing, trying to figure that out. Ian Fogan and the team, Charlie Freak and Nancy Moore, they've all done an amazing job at getting us to where, well, we'll, we'll this is the first on-demand transit service um, in eastern Canada, um, uh, past Montreal. It is, you know, uh, a type of service that will see us downsize the buses from being 40-foot buses, right? We're famous for the for the jingle, right? I've got a limo that's 40 feet long, um, that line. Well, <laughs> these new buses, I just saw one of them this morning because I take the bus from Martinon, where I live, mm-hmm. um, and I saw somebody get off this new uh, on-demand bus and it's a 12 passenger small it's about 12 uh, 12 14 feet long and it's uh, electric and they're made in Turkey and we have some of the only electric buses on the road uh, in the country right now and we are the only ones with these 12 foot passenger vans which are uh, pa- passenger buses which are really a European Japanese style mm-hmm. um, built for built for flexibility on routing and the ideal, though, here, you can hail the bus within 30 minutes, it gets to the bus stop, and it will get you to a rapid route uh, hub. So if you're coming on the west side where the, where the uh, flex zone is now, um, and there's about, I'm trying to remember how many stops, there's, there's over 30 stops um, on the west side uh, outside of the main line areas um, in this flex zone. And everybody would be within 400 meters of one of these stops. Um, and basically, that stop will take you to Lancaster Mall for a transfer, where we're also seeing an increase in time for our main line. So if you're coming uptown or you're going to McAllister Place, there's going to be a bus coming every 15 minutes, every 15 to 20 minutes, um, 20 minutes, sorry, 20 minutes service. Uh, every 20 minutes to Lancaster Mall, pick you up and take you over to McAllister, but going through the Uptown Corridor um, as well. So that's a pretty substantial mm-hmm. service increase and compared to what is there now, and we're pretty excited about it. But again, it's the only way that we can really go down the path that we're trying to go down of increasing density, uh, ensuring that you know tax dollars work as hard as they possibly can give us the best city because historically that's not the line we've trudged we've we've gone down the line of, of pretty 
location. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Suburban sprawl, etc. Uh, I, I I like the idea of getting more people to use the trains, the, the the bus system here in the city, so they don't have to rely on cars as much. Um, yeah. The 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 Birchill or Birchill wind project in Lawrenceville. Uh, it's going to have 10 wind turbines by the time it's done, and according to St. John Energy, it will provide 15% of St. John's energy. What are your thoughts on the project and the future of renewable energy here in St. John? We're the, I mean, not to pat us too hard on our own <laughs> back, but uh, St. John Energy is one of the poster childs for what good municipal crown corporations can do. Uh-huh. In an era where there is a major amount of polarization politically and people who believe, you know, I see the comment at Loyalist City News Churches all the time, oh, the city couldn't run a lemonade stand, right? It's completely arbitrary. They're not pointing at anything. There's not even a real grievance attached to it. It's just this this idea that it's incompetency at its best at City Hall, which couldn't be further from the truth because there's international, high-level, high-performing international organizations that want to do business right here in St. John. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people know this, but the ambassador uh, from Denmark was here in, uh, in the summer because one of their large, uh, innovative technology companies is using St. John Energy to roll out some of its new products as mm-hmm. a pilot uh, market. And so Birchill really is in that same stream of big wins for St. John Energy. Um, it's, it's come at a major political cost and mm-hmm. fight. Um, you know, there have been problems getting across Reversing Falls Bridge, working with uh, the province on, with DTI and with JDI, and ultimately has having to park those two towers to get the transmission across. Just the transmission alone, you know, from Birchill um, added millions of dollars to the bill because despite fighting about it, uh, NB Power would not allow St. John Energy to use their transmission lines. Uh, they said it's because they weren't equipped to do so, and even though St. John Energy hired two high-level um, industry consultants to do a, a, a bit of an audit on that and mm-hmm. found that it would be capable of, of handling Birchill, but we're finally here at the point where Birchill is going to go online, and next year it will return just over a million dollars in revenue to the city. So St. John Energy is going to have, it's going. first of all, anybody who lives in the city pays 10% less than NB Power customers in the rest of the province. So that's always been the case. Secondly, the level of service that you get, timage around outages, hugely different mm-hmm. compared, like, I've seen article after article about people in Quispamsis and Rosse, for example, big businesses having to buy these huge generators because they just can't handle the downtime um, that comes with being an NB Power customer mm-hmm. um, with some of these outages that occur. And, you know, here in the city, we've St. John Energy has had some of these uh, awards given to it for high-level customer service, innovation, and, and this is one of them. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is that the money that's being produced, because Birchill is a partnership between Natural Forces and St. John Energy. St. Mm-hmm. John Energy is a, is a part owner in Birchill, uh, but it's obviously the main distributor of the energy uh, produced there. It has, te- it has the first mega pack in North America installed from Tesla for battery backup, mm-hmm. will, that, which will hold about a day of power usage um, in it, so whatever can be produced in a day could be held for a day out. Um, 
coming into the city now um, in revenue sharing goes to bring down our tax rate. So the policy we have, uh, one of the many financial policies that we've uh, built over the past five years as a city, <coughs> um, excuse me, one of those policies is that that money has to go to driving down the tax rate. So it doesn't matter if it's half a cent or like this year where we reduce the taxes by nine cents. That money that we're predicting to come in um, as soon as Brookshire goes online is doing that work. Um, and so it's a big, big win. Just like, again, uh, in an era where people think government can run on a lemonade stand, this really stands in contrast because there's just no other energy utility in this country doing what St. John Energy mm -hmm. is doing and getting recognition for. Um, I saw, I think it was either on, it was either your tw on your Twitter page or your Facebook page, you talk about a vacant property tax, which I believe yeah. you're a fan of. Why is a vacant property tax? Can you explain more about it? Yeah, it's basically an extra tax on somebody who wants to keep a property vacant. So if you've got a building and she's boarded up and you have no plan to work on it and you're just sitting on that, then you're going to pay a tax. And that's going to be, because right now you're rewarded for it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about, without a vacant properties tax, if I put boards on my windows, Service New Brunswick drives by and says, oh, that's a piece of garbage house. It's not worth as much. And what happens? The person who owes it pays less taxes. Yeah. <clears throat> what the person doesn't do, what they don't take into consideration is the level of service that vacant building gets. So right now, if we've got a vacant building in St. John, board it up. We have to pay firefighters to keep an eye on it. Yeah. They go they go weekly to check on these buildings. Um, now, they don't go for hours, but they drive to it. Yeah. They take a walk around. Are there any combustible materials laying up against the building? Has it been broken into? What is the risk factor to the neighboring properties, all this stuff? The owner of that property, though, is paying less taxes than the tax than the person next to it. And beyond that, we know that the existence, it's, you know, it's, it's not new. The broken window theory tells us that the existence of rundown homes, boarded up, broken windows, all this stuff, increases crime by between 15 and 23% in neighborhoods. Why? Because it creates an undignified living condition for the people that live there, mm -hmm. which deters economic investment. And it, so there's a cost. The point I'm trying to make here, it costs us a lot of money to harbor vacant buildings. And right now, this current system that Service New Brunswick uh, manages for assessing properties rewards people for keeping mm -hmm. buildings like this. So right now, St. Johners are paying for this, and I don't think they should. So that's why we're talking about this vacant properties tax. It's a way to say, and we're not exactly sure how it's going to look. That will come in the next two, three months. Yeah. Will it be a fine system, or will we have a vacant properties registry and permit system? So if you want to keep your property vacant, you have to have a permit for it. Um, and that permit will go up in cost every year that mm -hmm. you add to it. Um, there's all kinds of different ways. Like, it was really pioneered in the United Kingdom, in some of the boroughs around London. Uh, it's been heralded as, as really turning some of those neighborhoods around that suffered with um, inner-city uh, dilapidation and things like that. But it's just a fact. St. John has a higher rate of dilapidation and rundown abandoned buildings per capita than almost any other city in this actually more than any other city in the country I, I believe um, like that. we're most cities don't have 
dangerous and dilapidated buildings programs to begin with because they don't need them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do, and that, and so this is a solution that you know has been there. It's been waiting to be picked up for decades since the first one was put in place. But we're finally getting to a place, and I was proud to bring that because it's been something I've been talking about since 2018 um, when I started to get more involved with housing advocacy here in the city. Recently, the Coverdale Center opened the Rose House, which is a 12-unit transitional house for women experiencing homelessness. I believe this is the type of project that not, that needs to be done in the city to help people get off the streets. What are you? What are your thoughts on fixing the housing crisis in the city and to have housing for everyone so that no one has to live on the streets, especially during a Canadian winter? Yeah, housing is human right, but yeah. we don't act like it. Yeah, that's the case. We don't have the money where it is, and it's it's been something I've, like, again, that's my main reason for being in politics. The Rose Building is a perfect example of something that we weren't doing four years ago that we're mm-hmm. doing now. Why? Because we're starting to resource it like we did in the 70s, right? Public housing as, a, as an entity, mm-hmm. and, um, and even, like, people have all these misconstrued notions about public housing, right? They think of ghettos yeah. in, in New York. They think of Chicago. They think of, you know, communist style buildings that are impoverished people living on top of each other. Well, we know, like, and I've studied community development, we've known for decades that that was a mistake. We now know that a neighborhood should not have more than 30% of its residents on subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't create for a resilient, effective, and, and capable community. So with the Rose Building, what you're seeing is a unique partnership between three levels of government and a nonprofit. This stuff only happened every decade or so. Um, in, in between, you know, I would say the early 2000s and, and 2020, this stuff just wasn't happening. Yeah. Um, if it was, it was few and far between. But nonprofits give us an incredibly uh, rich value proposition for solving the housing crisis because they don't have to return a profit to their shareholders. Right, yeah, and they don't have to. They don't have to return a profit, and they can approach it with a triple bottom line mindset. They they're not looking at it from okay, well, how do I co- recover all my costs on this? Um, simply, they're looking at it from okay, like with Coverdale, for example, connected to uh, social development with women who are experiencing uh, domestic violence, homelessness, addiction. I mean, housing is healthcare, right? Yeah. It's yeah. the hospital is where you go when you're sick. You know, this is something Jody Clicker said in a in a pod, not a podcast. But we did a, a, a live with Julia Woodhull Melnick and Jody Clifford. He's the, uh, the executive director of the St. John Land Bank. Uh, Councillor Killen and I were on there, and that's something he said, which I thought was profound. And I mean, I've heard other people reference it like that, but it is true. You know, it costs a lot of money to have people. Tying up our ERs, mm-hmm. tying up our food bags, tying up our social services. You know, there's 13, any one person living homeless can tie up 13 bureaucrats, public servants, or I should call them bureaucrats, <laughs> but can tie them up, different departments. Those are people making $80,000 a year to mm-hmm. service a few people experiencing homelessness and addiction. And as soon as they're housed, that, that changes. So it is a model that recovers costs. It is a model that brings dignity, and Rose House is like a beautiful example of, of 
unique building style, modularization, rapid initiative. You know, it's um, they just did a fantastic job down there. It really is the, the model. It's why we passed a motion in the fall for the city to consider establishing a municipal housing entity. Right? We don't. We don't. A lot of people don't realize the history, but. St. John is the home to the first public housing project in Canada at Rockwood Court. Um, we were on the cutting edge of, of public housing with our own municipally owned housing corporation. That housing corporation existed until about the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And now St. John Nonprofit Housing is the remnants of that, but it's been decoupled from the city because... The other two levels of government, the federal and provincial government, no longer funded housing because they adopted a neoliberal economic policy, which says the market is going to take care of housing, and all we need to do is deregulate or cut red tape so that the market can solve the problem. Well, now we're in a crisis. It didn't work. And now we've got to stand up something again because when we built um, the lion's share of housing in this city, when we had a housing crisis in the 70s from the boomer generation aging, um, we did it through our municipal housing entities. And so that's, we're kind of styling it that way. We want to, we want to learn some lessons, obviously, Mm -hmm. but we want this municipal housing entity to be this, this singularly run entity with that focus of getting up every morning and looking at housing and figuring out how we can move the needle on the problem. And the best way for that entity to do that will be through our nonprofits, which currently, I'll give you an example. Uh, Kaleidoscope is a formerly the St. John Loan Fund. They're amassing uh, a fund of money to try to help spur growth in development around nonprofit housing, around some of these housing first policies and ideas. Well, Seth, the executive director of the land, of the land, um, sorry, Kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. formerly the, the loan fund. He is the only person in that department that tries to secure these funding uh, contracts from these two levels of government, from the province of CMHC, the, the, the federal uh, entity that's responsible for housing in Canada. Well, those bureaucracies, and I use that word, public servants, uh, but those, those sectors are dense. There are thousands of employees there are dozens of programs the applications are difficult mm-hmm. and it's a lot of work for Seth just to do one on top of everything else he does so there's a perfect example of a coordination failure in the city where if you had a municipal housing entity that could play that role of connector and coordinator for these applications and for the programs that exist out there and you know, coordinating land and coordinating opportunity um, to nonprofits, you free up those nonprofits to do what they do well, which is take care of people, and you you change the dynamic of how long it takes for housing to get built. Um, so, long story short, on the rose building, but it really does serve as this example for us of like what's possible, mm-hmm. and, and this is what we need to do next is establish this entity, this municipal housing corporation to hold these cards and to advocate for that. And I would say that the next step really is for the for the province to set up its own housing 
ministry because they don't have a housing ministry. I hate to break it to Joe Green, Minister <laughs> of Housing, but there's no ministry of housing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, as a concept, it was de, um, de-designated basically in the 90s under Frank McKenna. I heard David Kuhn on your show talking about that. Um, and it's not because Frank was evil. It's because the feds were pulling away as well. Yeah. And so everybody started to choke on the infrastructure of housing creation. Because as soon as you pulled out one funder, you pulled them all the brunt, it, it trickled down, right? Yeah. So it trickled down. Now the province had to bear more weight. Well, they couldn't do it. And the city certainly couldn't. So it, that's when St. John Nonprofit Housing began to separate. Um, so you can see that we have to go back there, but it's going to take an investment. And it's not $100 million. And I know, I know Minister Shepard and um, Minister Dunn, and, and they were all very happy about that announcement. But that will just grease the gears of the current housing and be housing reality. Mm-hmm. It, won't, it won't leapfrog us to that next level. Uh, we really do need a ministry of housing um, to really champion housing in the, in the way that we know works. And Vienna is the way it works. When you, when you look to examples in the world, you look at Yonkers, New York, they have a very strong housing um, ecosystem. You look at Vienna, Austria as a, yeah, it's a city-state. It has a completely different uh, political reality than St. John, but... In, in Vienna, it's just a completely different reality. They don't have a housing crisis. You know, they're not, uh, they don't have crazy rising rents. Yeah. It's just, and they've had, they've had this success for decades and people are finally starting to pay attention to it. Yes, I know, especially like since COVID began, I know apartments that you could get for $600 a month that now can cost you about 1000 yeah. Same with housing prices. Housing prices have just gone ridiculously high everywhere you look. It could be St. John, it could be Back Bay. Housing prices have gone crazy. Oh yeah, my parents my parents just moved from Walls Cove. They had a beautiful home there in Walls Cove by the Grandman and Ferry and they made a pretty penny on it but (laughs) then they had to go buy somewhere and they moved to Grand Bay because they wanted to be closer to the city. I got three kids and stuff, right? So Uh they wanted to be closer to us and they wanted a downsize but they didn't make any money on that sale, even though they made a lot of money on that home in black. They, they cost them as much. And every house is up. Yeah. And until until we can challenge that profiteering construct in the marketplace, and again, you have to have a parallel track for housing. We don't have it, and that's what I'm suggesting we need to. We're creating, um, but it's yeah, it's it's a difficult scenario out there. I mean, how do you grow, right? Like. Mm-hmm. We want to grow our population to 85,000 people. Where are they going to live? Um, how are these industries going to find workers and house them? Like, there's hundreds of job vacancies right now in the cities. And we're, we're talking about immigration to solve it, but nobody's building three and four bedroom houses. Yeah. Right? It's too expensive. So it's uh, to do it in the private market anyway. So. Um. Yeah. Another issue that is facing the province, and I, I find to be probably the second biggest issue after housing, is mental health. Mental health is a crisis here in the province, and I find that the province is just is dragging its feet on the issue and just keeps throwing money at throwing money at the wall and hoping it sticks. What what could the province do and the city do to help people who are suffering from mental health get the help that they need? 
now the province is going through its local governance reform, which yeah. I'm excited about. Um, and but one of the risks is social dumping. Mm-hmm. The regional service commissions are going to have to take on roles around mental health, around uh, around housing, around and so these are new entities. Uh, on top of these old entities, like mm-hmm. our regional service commission, really just looked after the dump. <laughs> that was its main job: is to look after the like waste management mm-hmm. piece, right? It uh, and now it's looking at policing. It's looking at it, they're looking at all of them. Which I think that level of decentralization is where we need to go. Um, it allows for each region to have a custom fit, and mental health, I think, is going to be one of them. Now, here's the problem: unless you resource these changes. Uh, it becomes very difficult. Like so, we at the city we've talked about um, poverty, yeah. right? A lot because why? Because we have the highest child poverty rate in the country. Even though we live right down the street from one of the wealthiest postal codes in the country, um, so that dynamic is something that we're not okay with. Mm-hmm. And mental health is really at a at a crossroads within these impoverished communities. And so we talk about community centers being these frontline places. Uh, we talk about where people can gather and get support. We talk about, uh, you know, nonprofits that provide service and bring them on as partners um, for some of this. You know, you look at uh, new groups in the city like Chroma Envy, right? They're an uh, LGBTQIA plus support group brand new, only a few years old, that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Is that going to solve mental health problems? No. But a trans person who's struggling with their identity and struggling with abuse and recovery and, and having nowhere to go except the hospital uh, that becomes suicidal and then is on suicide watch, like I'm just I'm, I'm spelling out a scenario I've heard, right? Not that I'm saying this is the norm, but that scenario would have been the only track. Well, now, back up six steps. There's a local group that's doing work in the province that can be supportive of that person going through that struggle before their mental health struggle turns into a mental health collapse and crisis. That's the way we believe at the city level we can begin to tackle that. Small, incremental um, partnerships that you diversify them, you locate them around the city, you focus on those community centers and you incentivize those types of group creations. Could be newcomers, it could be elderly, it could be uh, anybody, right? It's uh, it's definitely a piece of the puzzle for us provincially. It really does come down to getting mental health services outside of the hospital, right? Yeah. Again, the, this idea of centralization, well, if we just put everything in one place it'll be easier for people but the problem with that is is it doesn't work it doesn't we've just seen it for so long that it becomes inundated and they become places people don't want to go yeah. and they don't go and so who wants to go to the ER no one so you don't go and then you become sicker mm-hmm. right if you're struggling at that level so we need to get these these levels of health care located outside of the hospital system um and I mean, my God, that's not just mental health. That's, I mean, my wife, she's, she would be remiss if I didn't mention birth work, uh, midwifery care, right? Every other province has gone 10 times further and proven the results over time of having um, 
birth support that you can have outside the hospital, taking people out of hospital beds, and also improving the, the determinants around health care that you get. So that's just one example. I mean, you've got these big surpluses that the government has for the last two years. Well, my hope would be that they don't repeat that, that every dollar has a job yeah. this time. And there's no way for four years, I know we started talking about mental health, but I see them as related. Like midwifery care has been stalled. The only place you can get a midwife is in Fredericton. And almost all those midwives are going out on uh, on that leave for their own births. And there's no no plan in place and no support to backfill them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to say no, but it just hasn't happened yet. And we don't know. I don't hear that level of communication from government. So I don't know. And mental health would be in the same category. When you look at where the services are provided, the level of burnout in the hospital system, it's under strain and it can't function that way. So I hope that these new dollars have a job and I hope that job is getting them outside the hospital. Um, because yeah, hiring more professionals is one thing, but creating a space people want to go to get that level of care is another. Yes, I'm a fan of like, especially down say St. George, like having a community center there that people could go to go see a therapist and go see a psychiatrist so they could get the help that they need in their communities and not have to go to somewhere like St. John. That's right. Um, I want to talk about- And we have the the Harbor, we have the Black Harbor Hospital there. But again, (laughs) these ideas of centralization, because it saves money, but the problem is it becomes more efficient and it becomes irresilient. So the community now has no resiliency. It, it, it's just not sustainable, right? So it's costing us more, is what we're learning. It may have saved us a buck, but it costs us more. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the port. The, the port, and I see it, it, I think it's growing at an exceptional rate. 150,000 containers, or 150,000 TEUs went through it last year. Uh, yep. The number's only going to grow. There's going to be two new container cranes coming in the first few months of this year, according to CEO. This the modernization project's going to finish. What are your thoughts on the port and the economic development that it brings while it keeps growing? The port's key. Yeah. It always has been for St. John, right? Yeah. The St. John was second to, you know, New Glasgow for shipbuilding for 100 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Things change, I get it. The economy changed. We didn't need to build schooners anymore. But there hasn't been a there hasn't been an appropriate imagination applied to what the port can do mm-hmm. and what what gaps in the economy and in the society it can fill until recently. And I'll give credit where credit's due to C P Rail for that work. Yeah. You know, them seeing uh, and not just them, it's D P World, it's a Pag Lloyd, it's all these companies who are, they have a pain point. Their pain point is they can't get their products moved fast enough. And again, we've had these, these neoliberal policies which create these big world markets where we don't make the things locally anymore, mm-hmm. right? And then one ship gets backed up in the Suez Canal and we're all mess. Yeah. And so they're wrestling with trying to diversify their shipping lanes so what do they do? They find one, and then the people at CP Rail, they create that network, that, that crucial rail network down as far as Boston, which connects us to a huge New England market, which has never been the case before. Mm-hmm. Uh, NB Southern, 
uh, as a short rail provider here in the province, growing at major uh, major rates. We, my first public hearing on council after I was elected, was to approve a major rail expansion at the facility on Dever Road for mm-hmm. NB Southern, uh, which is now going to be and now basically done as an intermodal um, facility that uh, has created. Uh, a major improvement in capacity for them that requires less shunting that allows them to create more um, connection to the rail system and and transport more of these containers so I mean it's it's an all-hands-on-deck endeavor but what I don't think people realize is we have something no one else in the country has not just with the port but with what we are as a city there's no other city that has maintained the level of industry on the eastern seaboard like us. Mm -hmm. Um, People see it as a weakness. I mean, there's problems with heavy industries, no question. Oh, yeah. They don't pay, they don't pay their taxes, right? At least they don't pay the taxes they would have to pay in any other province. There's a a sweetheart deal that's been given. They're not doing anything illegal, but they, this is the, this is the conundrum we have with heavy industry. So it sounds ironic for somebody like me who's been outspoken against that to say industry is an advantage for us. But the jobs that are here, the expertise that are here, the blue-collar workforce that's here, high demand now because you have partners in uh, the world you can't trust anymore mm-hmm. uh, with your supply chain, right? 90, 91% of all superconductors are, um, for, for microchips are um, in Taiwan. Yeah. That's made a massive problem for us. It's a geopolitical nightmare over there. Uh, China as well with taking two Canadians basically hostage and prisoner. Um, Russia's off the list. Their allies are off the list. Like, we're getting to a point where, and the feds are starting to talk about it, which is encouraging me about repatriating supply chains. And so we have this perfect alignment here. We have vacant industrial land Mm -hmm. in our industrial parks. Mountain is just, they're looking at getting into wetlands to try to expand their industrial parks. They're working on their fifth. We've got two that are underutilized. Yeah. We've got a ton of land. It's all serviced. We've got a port that is con- more connected, a greener port, first of all, than most, um, just based on how they've developed it uh, and, are, and are modernizing it right now. It's got a 120-odd mile advantage on Halifax. Yes. Halifax is maxed out. It <laughs> has no more capacity. And the only other port's Montreal, but you can't go up to the Gulf of St. Lawrence fully loaded in these, in these large ships. We're a deep water port. That's a big advantage. So there's a really interesting opportunity here when you think about all those new realities that are only about six months old or a year old. Um, and it, it just doesn't, it, it's one of those things that I've had to shift my thinking on because when I first came on council, I really did see industry, like economic development through industry, as something to be avoided. Mm-hmm. But but now we've got our team at the city of St. John working with the port so that we can start to break down what's in those shipping containers and we can start to go after some of those companies that are moving things to the port and see if they just want to bring their production here. Um, and that's something that our team at the city is working with. Uh, I know Mr. Mr. Brian Irving working in real estate. He he came to us after Develop St. John was wrapped up um, and you know he's got a team that is really again industrial parks are one of our tactics and that's because of this proximity to the port and where the port's going so it's a 
massive piece of, of the pop. And I mean, for New Brunswick, it, it's massive. Like, it's just the amount of wealth that could be produced and created here. I don't know how more people aren't on it. I mean, I saw the RBC came out with a big report and it had two pages to talk about St. John as this attractive investment opportunity that they're talking to their clients about. But I haven't seen the economists in New Brunswick. Um, yeah, and we've got a number of them that are mentioned all the time. I haven't seen anybody talk about it like this. And it, it's confusing to me. And I think it's just because we have this track that's been paved for all the economic attention being on Fredericton and Moncton. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is nowhere near as much potential in those cities as there is here now, not with that expansion and not with the new geopolitical reality. I mean, it could be an opportunity we miss, right, if we don't get the provincial support, if we don't get, um, if we don't attract the right players, if we don't um, move at a rapid enough pace to, to collect them, and somebody else will, and those will be missed opportunities, so I really hope we don't do that. But those issues, <laughs> those are much larger issues than the city can solve. Those are, you know, they require a lot more um, support. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, yeah, I like the port. I see the, they're going to start expanding so they can handle up to 800,000 TAs a year. That's bigger than Halifax. That's, on par, that's getting up to par with Montreal. That's correct. That's, it's crazy growth, and it can only bring good to the city and the province um yeah the problem with that though is again it just moves through yeah now you pay you pay money to move things through but from the city's perspective the port is important but it's not something that we that we benefit from so i'll give you an, like a little crash course out of every dollar that's collected in taxes uh eight cents comes to the municipality the other 92 goes to the province and the feds. Well, the port's federal land. Okay. It's not municipal land. So we get a payment in lieu of taxes. We don't get a tax collection on there, right? We, like the Service New Brunswick, um, has a, has a different partnership with, with the federal government on federal land. So it's not to say that we're, that doesn't, I don't want to put any shade on that. I'm just saying that the current style of government that we have that really and that funds these two other levels of government even though we right now are this city is ground zero I don't think people in Fredericton and Ottawa can make the same type of assessment and the same types of decisions removed from the locality where the where the issues are yeah it just doesn't <clears throat> doesn't work for me that way right so that's one thing we really have to add to the mix on the port is that the current way decisions are made around ports, they fall outside of the, the local municipality. Um, and we're lucky to have a CEO in Craig Esterbrooks that is as forward thinking and supportive of this city as he is because he doesn't have to be. Yeah. There are plenty of examples in Montreal of contention between the port and the city because they don't talk to each other because the port doesn't need to talk to them. And, and that creates distrust, that creates a negativity, which, again, deters investment, development, all of those things, right? So it, it is something.
something we need to be weary, like I guess, uh, aware of. And my hope is that those numbers will, will, will transition themselves over the next four to five years. Um, yeah. The last year, I don't remember when last year, the city passed a bylaw which would allow ride-sharing services in St. John. What are your thoughts on having a company, not say Uber, but a company like Uber, operating here in the, in St. John? Yeah, I'm really outspoken against Uber. Um, not against ride-sharing. Yeah. It's all, it all comes down to ownership. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because this one's close to me because uh, in 2018 when I was first starting the tool library, I was kind of torn between two different things. Um, the tool library took off, so I obviously ran with it. But I was also looking at a uh, local ride-sharing cooperative mm-hmm. uh, because I'd seen them happen in places, and I was like, "Wow, it's really interesting. What would it cost to take them?" Well, to replicate Uber's app, right? Just to reproduce it, it won't have the same level of functionality, but it will have a lot of the same points of functionality only about $150,000, right? That's not a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and what I would, like, the problem I have with Uber is that the profits go to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Right? It's taking the wealth of a local community and sending it somewhere else. Uh, yeah, the driver gets some money, no question, but we also know that Uber drivers almost have no rights. Um, there is all kinds of court cases right now class action lawsuits against Uber because of how they treated workers. Um, and they've, they basically can skirt the labor laws of the locality because they're not located there. It's a subcontractor driving for them. So it's a problem in how it's arranged. And I just think that with that many problems, why would you want them in your city? I, I agree though, ride sharing as a concept is important mm-hmm. because it's, you know, there's all kinds of people that that's their entry, that's an entry level job that pays that doesn't pay entry-level wages. It pays better. Um, if you think of a newcomer right now, I know a couple of newcomers that are driving for DoorDash. Well, I can get them a job making $16.50, $17 an hour on a job site, starting out with, with what little experience they have. But they can make, on average, $18.50, $19 an hour driving for DoorDash and skip the dishes. Yeah. So hard... Uh, it's a hard, and it's flexible. They can do other things besides, and that that would be one of them. Ride sharing could be one of them um, when they're not doing deliveries, right? It's it's one of those things that we got to figure out. But I really hope that the way we figure it out is by somebody locally picking up the idea, going and putting together the business case, get the taxis on side, and create this locally, or bring something that's a little more locally based um, that they have done in. I mean, even Montreal has one. I'm just trying to remember the name of it. Montreal, Vancouver, uh, Calgary, they all have competitors with Uber and Lyft that are more or less local co-ops. Mm-hmm. So if, who knows whether we will, I certainly don't have the time or the money to go, <laughs> to go after it. But it's, it's one of those things that I'm like rooting for, I guess you could say. Before you ran for council in 2021, you ran in for the Greens in the 2020 election in St. John Harbor. Do you have any intentions of running again in, say, the next provincial election? Oh, I always have the intention of of running provincially, (laughs) I would say. (laughs) Uh, Whether, you know, 
I would I would say right now I'm working on that. I'm working to that end. Um, my council term was supposed to be up in 25. Um, it's been extended because of the repeat in the elections. Uh-huh. Uh, I just I there's so so many issues that I see that we fight tooth and nail for here in the city, and I don't see the same level of of support at the province. Yeah. Right? Fredericton can't solve St. John's problems. Definitely not. Now, they can try. The policy, and same with Charlotte County, right? But what I would say is there are communities where they've applied their policies in Fredericton and it's supported communities. Fredericton is one. Moncton is another. Mayor Machine, you could question whether it's turned around lately, and mm-hmm. certainly Mayor Lord and I have many had many conversations about that. It's uh, there's been some big uh, improvements there, but they're still struggling majorly. Uh, the North certainly wouldn't say that there no. is any love lost between Fredericton and them, and so it, it's just like I I look at housing, I look at economics, I look at Democrat the democratic deficit that exists. With, you know, I got 24% of the vote when I ran for the Greens. Yeah. Uh, I finished second. 23.9, I guess what I got. I finished second. Um, Arlene beat me. She got 33%. Well, she got 33% of 38% of people showing up to vote. That's not very much. It, it's, it's, it's terrible. Why would people vote if they don't? Like, yeah. again, the level of disenchantment that exists, that frustrates me. And the only place where you can really have and elevate the conversation to, because I see the happening here. I'm on Twitter. I'm on the street corner. I talk yeah. to people who come into a library about this stuff. I know people locally are having these conversations. But where I don't see them occurring is in, at the provincial legislature. Um, you know, we have, I'll give you an example. Sustaining St. John, a three-part plan, written in 2018. It was this comprehensive um, look at St. John because we were collapsing financially. Yeah. We were choking on our infrastructure. Um, we had negative growth rates, and we couldn't afford our services. And the province said, "We're done. We're cutting ten million dollars out of your budget. We're not going to give you this money anymore. So figure it out." Now, that level of depra- depravity created a really intentional push at the city to get our financial house in order. Mm-hmm. I mean, the level of financial policies and due diligence that we have now is far above and beyond any other city in Atlantic Canada that I've looked at. Um, you know, where we have sub- like subsidization policies, where we have policies around revenue, where we have policies around expenditures and debt. It's just, those aren't there in other cities. We've had to do them and we've done that work and now we're cutting the tax rate and we're budget still growing so the work's paying off. But that plan has at least two major parts to it. Comprehensive tax reform, and that includes residential and industrial, that have to be done at the provincial level. Yeah. The, I did a look at it. Jeff Carr was down here, by the way, after it was written, talking about it, saying this was going to be it. Now, the city has kept up every one of the parts of that plan. Every piece that we had to the puzzle, we've done. There's two major ones that the province said they were going to do in 22, that they have no plans to do until 24 now. And that's around comprehensive tax reform, uh, industrial and residential. Because we know that everything in St. John, for some reason, is valued less than 
same building would be in Moncton or Fredericton. Yeah. But we have the same cost to the city, right? So this, the cost of a firefighter, a police officer, uh, somebody plowing the streets, somebody servicing your sewage. I mean, our, our water costs way more because we have 33 lift stations to move water in St. John versus, you know, I think it's 13 in Moncton, right? They're on a flat area. Some of those are not going to be comparable. But yeah. the costs are the same to us, even though the thing we make revenue on, which is taxes, all of ours are valued at less. So it becomes this, like, how can you not see it? And how can nobody be talking about it? Um, conundrum. And so for me, like ever since I've got here, I'm like, okay, I want to do a good job as a counselor, but without, without fail, every time I come to a problem and I start to look at the solutions or I start to, you know, get educated on the solutions or do my own deep dive on them, it goes to the province. Yeah. So if, if we had MLAs that I could see and hear them in question period, bringing this stuff up, talking about it on social media in a way that's authentic. That, that would tell me as a counselor that you, they get it. They get it and they're doing their best. And of course, I, you're not naive. You know you can't change all these things overnight. Yeah. But if, if, if at least you could see they were talking about it, then you would have a little more faith. I would probably relax into my role as a counselor a little more. But as it is right now, I feel like people have sent me here to do a job I have two hands tied behind my back to try to do. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to provincial politics, it always, it's always been a place for me that I thought I wanted to be and that I had the skill sets to be at. Um, so I, it's an ongoing conversation for me, for sure. And I continue to talk to actually all parties about it. You know, I, when TJ Harvey had his campaign for liberal leadership, I was meeting with him mm-hmm. regularly. Um, Andrea Mason and I have met a number of times um, to chat. Um, David Coombe was just down here the other day, um, uh, just before Christmas actually, at Uptown Sparkle, but to chat with myself and a few other people. So there's definitely a number of us that are kind of in the background working this out to figure out, okay, well, where will the solutions come from and, and what would be the best roadmap to get these to Fredericton and who would best be, who would be the best one to get us there? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a long answer to say yes. But those are all the features of the of the of the puzzle for me. The, the that's all the questions I have written out for you. Would you like to say anything to the people listening? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm 33, and there's not enough people 35 and under invested. Yeah. And it's it's a problem because we just saw in. The Democratic election down, in, or the uh, the elections down in the states, the Democrats pulled out a pretty major surprise win because young people showed up to vote. Yeah, and they voted for uh, the Democrats by and large, and that kept Republicans out of the House in the numbers that they were. Everybody was thinking they would. Change is so possible. Like again, thirty-seven percent of people in St. John Harbor voted. We have an we have a lower than average age group here mm-hmm. in the city. In, in St. John Harbor. Um, and I just don't see enough of us out there. Uh, and I get it. It can be frustrating to see it and you yeah. can not know where to start. But it's podcasts like this. I mean, kudos to you guys for putting this on. It's little podcasts like this. It's it's reaching out for a meeting. It's reaching out for a coffee. It's, it's chiming in. 
um, on you know in the comment sections the issues are happening mm-hmm. or showing up to events like we just have to do it because the people who are benefiting from the current status quo they're showing up yeah and those of us who are not and I would put myself in this category as a you know a young dad uh, swung a hammer for a living I've been the executive director of a nonprofit um, we've gone down to one car <laughs> right and I'm an elected official. Like, not woe with me, but, like, I'm not, I'm not hitting home runs up here in life. Yeah. Uh, and yet I'm, work, I'm working real hard to do it. And I know a lot of other people like me. Uh, and so I just, I guess that would be the, the final shot, if you will. Like, we just, we need to have people 35 and under uh, showing up and supporting and getting involved because that's where the solutions are, I believe. My final comment is... During the municipal reform, we Eastern Charlotte became its own became its own entity, and yeah. I decided like I why not run for for council, you know? And so I did. I yeah, not got talking to people, did social media. I I didn't win. I didn't expect to, but I got my name out there, and I heard from people that were that wanted younger people in office. And, and and it's because we all have this sense, right? Like you, you kind of expire a little bit. You get a little older. You get a little more disconnected from the average person. Uh-huh. You get a little more comfortable in your lifestyle. And the people who, you know, you just don't have those same environments to understand those issues firsthand. And I think that's, I've heard the same thing. And I'm 33. I'm nowhere near as young as you were. Um, but like, I've heard the same thing. Oh, it's lovely seeing a young person in politics. And I think, why does everybody say that? It's exactly that reason, is that everybody has this sense that having a career politician be in office for 15 years doesn't, doesn't produce good outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think of Noah Donovan on that, uh, Councillor Donovan and, and Chris Bam. He's the province's youngest councillor. Yeah. He was doing a fantastic job. You know, I was in Regina with him this summer at the, the FCM conference, and like, man... He's a fiery little guy who's a little guy. He's a fiery <laughs> guy who's passionate. Um, I guess everybody's little to me. I'm six and a half feet tall, so I probably should watch what I say. But, um, <laughs> but no, good for you, man, for for running. It's it's really good to see. I was watching that election a little bit uh, from afar, and I was really hoping. Um, I have a friend Ashley Ritchie who used to be on Village Council in Blacks, hoping she would run. I saw your name pop up. Um, Alexa Didaraki popped up. I was just, you know, few young people who trying to get in on the on the conversation. So it was good to see. It it, it was certainly an experience. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> so you, do you have plans to do that again in your life? Oh, definitely. Oh yeah. It, 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 okay. I, I found it like I found it kind of a kind of addicting. You know, like talking to people about issues and issues that you really care about and. I found it something yeah. that I, I enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's same same with me, right? You get a little more passionate each time you yeah. you want you master a file and you understand it and and you want to bring that passion to matter. I mean, it's not the only thing I can do, but uh, it is something like you said. It's it has its own level of reward for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thanks to, for talking to me for the past hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that went by quick. Thanks so it much did. for uh, doing this with me. It was, it was, it was a good conversation. Learned a lot. Talked about how we can fix the city and all that good stuff. 
Okay. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Okay. You too. Bye. And this has been episode 11 of the Manifesto podcast. My name's Logan, and today my guest was Brent Harris, Council Alert for the City of St. John. Thanks for tuning in to the Manifesto podcast brought to you by the UNBSJ Politics Society. I'm your host, Logan Cook. <laughs>